Open your Bibles to Jeremiah 16. Jeremiah 16. The title this evening is Living What You Believe. Living What You Believe. Or Walking the Walk. And not just you're talking the talk. The days for Jeremiah are becoming more and more difficult. The nation of Judah is coming to the end of its rope. And at this particular time in chapter 16, it could be within 10 years of the destruction of Jerusalem. Here Jeremiah in chapter 16 is to be a sign to the people. They wouldn't listen to what he said. So maybe they would believe him because of what he did. And really what we do seems to have more of an effect than what we say. Because it's easy to talk. But you know, to live the talk is another story. And that's what people need to see. Basically, he must personally live like somebody who believed the things that he was saying. That he, that, that he believed the actual things that he was telling the people. And again, that's one of the things that we hear so often from people in the world about Christians. Is Yeah, they, they talk about the Bible and they talk about going to church, but they don't live what they believe. It's said that Billy Graham met a leading atheist in Europe one day. And the man explained why he wasn't a Christian. He said that if he, if he truly believed, as Christians say they believe, that everyone must face eternity and give an account for how they have lived, and that Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection was the only way to God, and a secure eternity in heaven, that all who do not receive Christ's provision for their sin would spend eternity in a place called hell, then he said he would not rest day or night from warning everyone and urging everyone to respond to Christ. But he continued... When I see the way most Christians live, I am totally convinced that what they say they believe is not true. And this is why I'm an atheist. Jeremiah predicted that judgment was coming. He was giving the people a message of judgment from God. But not, not many believed what he had to say. Not many believed his prediction. So now he's going to show them by the way he lives that he believes what he's telling them. Others just go on with their business as usual. But he knows that sad times are coming. So, he's for, so God forbids him to marry. He, bid, he, for, he forbids Jeremiah to mourn for the dead. And he bids Jeremiah to express any joy. Here's the lesson. If we're going to convince and influence others with the word of God, we better act like we believe it no matter what it might cost us. And as we've taught, taught many times before, sometimes God asks us to do things or not do things that are difficult. And that's what God has asked Jeremiah to do here. Jeremiah, I don't want you to get married at this time. I don't want you to mourn for the dead. And I don't want you to express joy. If we're going to wake people up out of their sin and false security and persuade them not to love the world, we have to be dead to those same things. We have to be dead to the world. And we have to show that we truly believe that there 
that, that these things that the world you know holds so near and dear that they're going to come to an end Jeremiah who is a sensitive and caring man he wanted companionship he wanted fellowship with his fellow man and now he's forbidden for has forbidden these things he stands alone and separated from his friends he's a lonely person and, and, and things are only going to get worse and that's why God forbids Jeremiah the comforts of home and family at this time. Let's begin now chapter 16 with verses 1 and 2. And Jeremiah says, The word of the Lord also came to me, saying, You shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. So Jeremiah is the only prophet who was told he couldn't get married. But there are things worse than loneliness. He can't get married nor think about having a family. And the Jews, more than any other people, they valued themselves on their early marriages and having, as the Bible says, a quiver full of children. But Jeremiah has to stay single. And by this, it seems it was advisable, again, and only during disastrous times and times of present distress. So this wasn't something that God asked Jeremiah. He couldn't get married for the rest of his life. This was something he was asking Jeremiah to do at the moment, considering the disastrous times and the present distress of the time they were living in. And, you know, and I've often heard, you know, in, in, in a bad economy or, or bad times, you say, well, I, I'm not going to have any kids right now till things get better because it's a bad time to bring, bring, you know, a child into the world. When we see times like this, it's wise for everyone, especially prophets, to keep themselves as much as possible from getting all caught up, caught up with the cares of this life and weighed down with those things that are dear to them. Because you see, the closer those things are to you, the more you will have a burden for them, like family and children and a wife. You know, in Jeremiah's case. You know, you're going to care for them. You're going to worry about them. You're going to you know, worry about their fear of things and, and, and their grief. Those things will weigh heavy on your heart as the husband and as the father of that home. Verses three and four. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and the daughters, notice, who are born in this place, and concerning their mothers who bore them and their fathers who begot them in this land. They shall die, notice, they shall die gruesome deaths. They shall not be lamented, nor shall they be buried, but they shall be like refuse on the face of the earth and they shall be consumed by the sword and by famine and their corpses shall be meat for the birds of heaven and for the beasts of the earth. So, it's all, so, so God's telling Jeremiah, this is why it's not a good time for you to be married and have a family. He says, the judges are coming and what's going to happen? He's talking about all these families that are going to be wiped out and, and the children and, and, and what's going to happen. So again, the reason the Lord tells Jeremiah he can't get married and have a family is because the fathers and the mothers, he said, and the children at this time who are going to go through this judgment, they're going to die terrible deaths. Now, a single man may be able to escape from all of this for his own safety, but with wife and children, uh, it's going to be a lot harder, maybe even impossible. They'll always be afraid of them getting killed. That is the father. He'll always be afraid of his family getting killed. And the more they have to lose, the greater the fear, the greater the worry will be when that death, and especially when that death is all around them. The death of every child and the way they died would be tormenting. 
It's better not to have children than give birth to children only to see them killed, murdered, or to see them live and die in misery. They won't be able, God says here, they won't be able to mourn for their dead. They won't even get a decent burial. They'll be left exposed to be reminders of God's justice. And it says, in, in, our, in, the, in the verse there, it says, they'll be like refuse on the ground. The word refuse means like dung. They'll be like dung on the ground, disgraceful and sickening, as if they were only good to fertilize the ground. Dead as a result of the sword or famine, their bodies will be food for the birds and wild animals. Whenever anybody asked Jeremiah why he wasn't married, he would have a chance to share God's message of the coming judgment. Here's why I'm not married right now. There's a judgment that's coming. And you know what? If you don't turn to God, you will be a part of that judgment. And so it's an opportunity. When we, when we see what's going on in our world today, and people say, man, I can't, I mean, what's going on with our country? What's going on with all these things and, and, and all the, 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 the weather and the crime and, 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 you know, all of the things taking place in our nation, all this, you know, the, the perversity and the violence. And it's an opportunity to share the word of God. That God said, hey, when you see these signs, he says, know that Jesus Christ's coming is near. And, and, and God's judgment is going to fall upon the nation going to fall upon those who reject Jesus Christ. So, again, when everybody asks Jeremiah why he, you know, he's not married, he says, you know, hey, it's not the time, man. It, God's judgment is coming. And then Jeremiah wasn't allowed to go to the house of mourning. Look at verse 5. For thus says the Lord, Do not enter the house of mourning, nor go to, nor go to lament or bemoan them. For I have taken away my peace from this people, says the Lord, loving kindness and mercies. He, says, he, he told Jeremiah, Don't even go to funerals to mourn and show sympathy for these people. Because I have removed my protection and peace from them. I've taken away my unfailing love and my mercy. Now, the Jewish people in Bible times, they were experts at mourning and marrying. But Jeremiah was forbidden to attend funerals or weddings and the feasts that were connected with them. Now, what did this, you could say, cold behavior, this, you know, like insensitive behavior say to the people? Well, for one thing, God had removed his peace and comfort from the nation. Also, the judgment that was coming would be so terrible that the people wouldn't be able to express their grief. Because, you see, there would be so many corpses and so few survivors that nobody would be able to bury the dead, let alone comfort whatever family members were left. And as for wedding feasts, when he said you're not even to express joy, how could people celebrate with such a cloud of destruction hovering over the nation? The days would come when the happy voices of brides and bridegrooms wouldn't be heard anymore. In fact, all joy and gladness would be gone from the land. The exiles would form a funeral march and go to Babylon. Jeremiah can't even go to the house of mourning to grieve when somebody dies, whether it's his neighbor or family. And it was customary to grieve with those whose relatives were dead. 
You know, and they would cut themselves and they would shave themselves. They'd make themselves bald. This was a common practice at that time, expressing grief even though it was forbidden by the law. Look at verses 6 through 7. Both the great and the small shall die in this land. They shall not be buried. Neither shall men lament for them, cut themselves, nor make themselves bald for them. Nor shall men break bread in the morning for them to comfort, the, uh, to comfort them for the dead. Nor shall men give them the cup of consolation to drink for their father or mother. And sometimes in, in a fit of grief, the people would cut themselves. Partly in honor of the dead, suggesting they thought they were a, uh, that that was they were a great loss, and partly cut themselves in sympathy for the surviving relatives, because their burden wouldn't be as heavy because they shed tears with them in their grief. They'd mourn with them to comfort them in their loss, like Job's friends did with him, and like the Jews did with Martha and Mary at Lazarus's death. That it may be some comfort to them to find that though they're They've lost a loved one. There's someone there with them. They have friends left there that are concerned for them. God said in verse 5 to Jeremiah, I've taken away my peace from this people. God has deprived them of health, wealth, peace, friends, and everything that might comfort themselves and and each other. Whatever peace we enjoy, it's God's peace. And it's his gift. But you see, if we don't make good use of his peace, he can and will take it away. And if he does, then how can we have peace? He said in verse 5, I have taken away my peace, notice, even my loving kindness and mercies. Those who are not in the will of God, they have cut themselves off from all true peace. All is gone when God takes away his loving kindness and his mercies. And again, and as, as we see what's happening in this nation today, and again, it, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's going to be the judgment that's going to come because of the sins of the nation. God's forewarning the people here, and, it, and you see that it hasn't changed over the centuries. Then following verse 6, Both the great and the lowly, the high and the low, are going to die in this land of Canaan, which used to be called the land of the living. But God's favor is our life. Take that away and we die. Look at verse 8. Also, you shall not go into the house of feasting to sit with them to eat and drink. The last thing Jeremiah wasn't allowed to do was go to the house of feasting. He couldn't go to their feasts. He couldn't go to their parties anymore, just like he can't mourn with them. So he couldn't get married. He couldn't express joy. You know, he, he, he couldn't enjoy these things with everybody else when judgment was coming. It was normal and it was okay to go to his friend's house when he was invited to go and sit with him to eat and drink, soberly that is, and have fun. But now he can't do that anymore. See, he's being a witness. He's, how can I enjoy life in the sense that, that, that you know, there's nothing wrong when, when God's judgment is coming? You see, he couldn't do that because it wasn't the right time and it was contradictory to the plan of God 
in light of the judgment that was coming on the land and the nation. In other words, how can I sit with my friends and party and have a good time when Jesus is coming in judgment and they're not saved? God called for weeping and he called for mourning and he called for fasting because he was bringing judgment on the land. And it was time for the people to humble themselves and it was fitting that Jeremiah, who gave them the warning to be an example of himself of that warning and obey what was the warning to show them that, hey, I believe what God has told me. The very thing that God told me to tell you, I believe it. So he's not partaking in the things of the world. He's not doing the things of the world, the things that they do. Because God's bringing judgment. And it's the same thing today. Jesus Christ is coming back. We don't want to be caught doing those things. And because Jeremiah had to tell the people about the sad times that were coming upon them, his friends would wonder, why doesn't Jeremiah come over and hang out with us anymore like he used to? And you probably asked that question of people that you knew who got saved, and then people asked that about you when you got saved. Because when Pastor Raul, like I said, when, when we, you know, like I said, we went to school together, I, I knew him in the old days, and, and when he quit hanging out with us, I would say, why isn't he hanging out with us anymore? You know, why isn't he doing the things that he used to do, the things that we used to do together? Why? why? Because, you know, he came to know Christ, and he knew that his friends needed to be saved, that, that, that people needed to be saved because judgment would come. It's coming. It may not happen overnight, but it's coming. And you need to be ready. First Peter said in chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, he said, You have had enough in the past of the evil things that godless people enjoy. Their immorality and lust, their feasting and drunkenness and wild parties, and their terrible worship of idols. Of course, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things that they do. That's the New Living Translation version. You don't do the things that you used to do. And again, when you tell people about Christ and the love of Christ and the salvation of Christ and the Word of God and obedience to the Word of God, and then you're still doing the things that you used to do before you say you got saved, what's the difference? There's no difference in you. Why would they, why would they want to believe you? Because you're still doing the same things of old. Verse 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, notice, I will cause to cease from this place before your eyes and in your days the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. God says to Jeremiah, Hey, I'm going to put an end to the happy singing and the laughter in this land. The joyful voices of the bridegrooms and the brides, you're not going to hear them anymore. And God is hinting that all of their feasting, all of their partying would come to an end before long. And God can find ways to bring your sinful joy to an end. 
This is going to be done right here in Jerusalem. It used to be a happy place. He said, and you thought your good times would never end. And, and, and you know, in the world, you know, you, you think you're just having a wonderful time. Everything is great. But at some point in that old life of the world, you start to think about it. Is this all there is, man? Is this what I'm going to do for the rest of my life? Get high and party? I know that's when I began to wonder about life. Living for the weekend. Living to get high. Just doing the things. I go, I can't imagine doing this the rest of my life. And God just began to open my eyes. And so... God says, those happy times are going to be brought to an end because, because of their sins, because of their idolatries. So God, for good reason, stopped all of their joy and all of their good times. The people didn't listen and pay attention to God's voice. They didn't listen to the message that the prophets brought to them. So he says, the, vo- the voice of the bridegrooms and brides, they're not going to be heard anymore. The songs that they used to sing at the weddings, they're not going to hear them anymore. Verse 10. And it shall be when you show this people all of these words and they say to you, why has the Lord pronounced all this great disaster against us? Or what is our iniquity? Or what is our sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? And so they're asking these questions. God, what what have we done? What's our sins? What are we doing that's so bad that this judgment's going to come? And God says to Jeremiah, here's what you tell them. Look at verses 11 through 12. Then you shall say to them, because, here it is, here's why God's going to bring this judgment. Because your fathers have forsaken me, says the Lord. They have walked after other gods and have served them and worshipped them and have forsaken me and not kept my law. So, you know, he's, he's hinting In verse 9, that all of their feasting would come to an end before long. And like I said, God can find a way to bring your sinful joy to an end. And so, Jeremiah says again, now look at verse 12. He says, and you have done worse than your fathers, for behold, each one follows the dictates of his own evil heart so that no one listens to me. So when they asked Jeremiah, what have we done? What, what, what have we done to God that's been so bad? And what is it that, that it, why he's bringing this judgment? Jer- well, God tells Jeremiah, this is what you tell them. You'd hope somebody in the group would ask this question with a humble, repentant heart. Why is God bringing this judgment? What have we done? What's the iniquity? What's the sin? Hoping they would really want to know what was the sin that God had against them. And that they forsake the sin and stop the judgment. But the questioning of the people in verse 10. All right. But when they ask this question, I should say it's in uh, verse 11. I'm sorry. um, Verse 10. When they ask this question, what do we have against us? You know. They they the question seems to show they were disagreeing with God. They didn't come with a repentant heart asking in repentance. You know, we want to know what have we done, Lord? What, what is it? What's the sin against us? But their question is, hey, God, 
What are you so bum? What are you so troubled about? What is the sin? What's the sin that we, we that you have against us? You know, they're, they're saying basically, show us what we've done that was so bad to deserve such severe punishment. They said, notice in verse ten, what's our iniquity? What's our sin? What crime, God, are we guilty of? Or at least tell us why we deserve such severe punishment. And one of the things he used to say back in the day before you, uh, I knew the Lord, and a lot of people, when people would, would, hey, I'm not a bad person. I don't steal. I don't murder. Well, God bases our goodness on a lot more than those couple of things. Instead of humbling and judging themselves, they try to justify themselves, just like when you say, well, I'm a good person. I don't steal. I don't murder. You know. We try to justify ourselves and suggest that, God, you're doing wrong, God. You're doing me wrong, bringing this judgment against me, and that he's punishing them more than they deserved. And they felt they had a reason to argue with God their point. But like Job chapter 34, verse 23, it says, For he does not need to consider a man further that he should go before God in judgment. In other words, God does not need to set a time for us to go and be judged by him. God does not have to set a time and let us know when that judgment is coming. He doesn't need to consider me or talk to me about that time when that judgment is coming because he knows all the facts. And it's amazing to see how often sinners want God to justify himself. Show me, God. Show me where I'm doing, what I'm doing wrong. They want, to just, they want God to justify himself <clears throat> instead of judging themselves when they're in trouble. <clears throat> and then owning up to their sin that has brought them the trouble. And then God gives them a clear and complete answer to their question. God doesn't just say to them, hey, trust me, I have a good reason. Though that's all he would really need to say. The righteous God is never angry. He does not bring judgment without a good reason. But he must tell them what their specific sin is. Why? So they can be convicted of it. And they can be humbled They could recognize, you know what, God, you're right. I am guilty of this and this and this and this. And I need to be humbled by it because God has made it known to me. Or at least that God may be justified in his charges against me. You know what, God, you have every right for what you're saying. You have every right for the charges that you're bringing against me. They had ignored God's long-standing institutions and got tired of them. This is, this is what's happening in the church today. People are ignoring God's long-standing institutions. They're getting tired of them. They're too simple. They're too dull. They're not exciting enough. So they walk after other gods whose worship, oh, it might be brighter, it might be more spectacular, it's something new, it's trendy, it's exciting, it's not that same old, dull, old religion. 
They liked variety. They liked new things. And they served those new things and worshipped them. And this was the sin that God had condemned them for in the second commandment. You shall have no other gods before you. See, people got their eyes looking for something new, something exciting, some trend. Oh, you know, you got to come to our, you see what they're doing over here, and and we're doing this, it's a new thing over here, and, and oh, wow, that sounds exciting, that is new. But is it biblical? Is it scriptural? We need to stick to the word of God. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When I say that, not that our God is any different, but people worship him in a different way. Many of them worship him in the wrong way. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Solomon tells us there's nothing new under the sun. It just comes around every so often. It just comes in in a new cycle. It's something that looks new, but when you take the wrappings off, it's the same old thing. The same old thing. We don't need to look for something exciting. We need to look for something that's real and living. And and, and it just, it's permanent. It's forever. God judged them, verse 12 said, for their own iniquities. God would judge their children who kept these idolatrous practices because they received them by tradition from their fathers, Peter said. And so God judged them for their own uh, iniquities in verse 12. It says, he says, you have made your father's sin your own, and even worse. They were more disrespectful and stubborn in their sin than their fathers were because they walked after, he said, the dictates of their own heart or after the imaginations of their own heart. They made their heart their guide. Their heart led them. Their heart guided them. They made their heart their guide, their rule, and they were set on following that rather than listening to God and his prophets. Verse 13. Therefore, God says, I will cast you out of this land into a land that you do not know, neither you nor your fathers, and there you shall serve other gods day and night where I will not show you favor. So no wonder God said this to them in verse 13. The people did not want to listen to God. So what's he going to do? He's going to send them and their ancestors to a land that they've never been to. And God says, you know what? You can go there. You can go to this land. You can worship your idols day and night. You can can worship them all day long. But I will grant you no favors. Two things would make their life very miserable. And both of them relate to their soul. The worst part of their captivity is that they be excluded from the thing that makes them the most happy, serving God. The soul is the happiest when it's serving God. But where the people were going, they were going to be serving other gods day and night. And they would continually be pressured to serve them and maybe even forced to serve them. By their cruel taskmasters. And you know, when you're forced to worship idols, you'll be sick of it. We come to church because we want to. We love to. We want to be here. Nobody forces us to come. But you remember in the days when you're forced to do anything, man, you get sick of it. 
God often makes men sin, their own sin, their punishment. And let's get the backslider. Let's let, let's, let's let the backslider have his full until it's no more fun. Alcohol, drugs, whatever it might be. Many times they, they get their fill of it until it's no fun anymore. What used to be fun or a pastime has become a habit. It's no fun anymore. The only worship that people will have is idols in that land. And then they'll think and be sorry how they insulted the worship of the true and the living God. The soul is truly happy when it experiences God's loving kindness. But he says, hey, you guys are going to a strange land. Or I won't, I won't be there. I won't, I, won't show you the, I won't show you favor. At least if they were going to have God's favor, that would have made their captivity a pleasant land. But being under God's wrath, the oppression is going to be unbearable for them. Verses 14 and 15. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that it shall be no more. That, I'm sorry, that it, shall be, uh, that it shall no more be said, the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt. But the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he had driven them. For I will bring them back into their land which I gave to their fathers. In this dark time in Judah's history, God let Jeremiah see there was a bright future ahead. He sees light at the end of the road. It's amazing that this theme reappears all through the prophet's writings. There's light at the end of the road. It never got so hopeless that the prophets never saw any hope coming down the road. And the darker it got, the brighter the light seemed to shine. God says the day is coming when he's going to bring them back from captivity. He's going to bring them back to their, home, their, their own land. Verse 16. Behold, I will send for many fishermen, says the Lord, and they shall fish them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. Jeremiah also used the metaphors of fishing, hunting, and and banking in verses 16 through 18. The Babylons would throw out their nets and catch the Jews, and not one would escape. And nobody knows. And, 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 and he said they'll find, they'll find them wherever they're hiding, whether it's in the hills or mountains or caves in the rocks, and, and they'll flush them out. God has different ways of carrying out his judgments on people that ignore the convictions of the word of God. He says if anybody tries to hide in the hills, the fishermen would become hunters, like hunters, and track them down. Why? Because the, the, the nation owed a great debt to the Lord. For the way they had treated his law and his land. And now it was, for, it was time for them to pay up. Verse 17. For my eyes, notice, for my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity hidden from my eyes. You know, sometimes people act like, like little kids. You ever notice little kids? They think if they can't see you, you can't see them. And many times that's the way people act with God. The people of Israel may have wished that hiding from God was as simple as closing their eyes. 
Even though they closed their eyes to their sinful ways, their sins certainly weren't hidden from God's eyes. He sees everything. And God can't be deceived. Hebrews 4.13 says, And there is no creature, notice, there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. God sees right through us. God sees our hearts. The problem is we don't always know what is in our own hearts. We think we do. Jeremiah later on says, or next chapter, he says, the, the, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things. And it's desperately wicked. And nobody knows how bad their heart really is except the Lord. And he gives all people what they deserve according to their works, that is, according to their behavior, to their conduct. God uses the word, the Bible, to enable us to see the sin and the unbelief that's in our own hearts. James says it's like a mirror. We read it and we see ourselves in the word of God. The word of God exposes our hearts. And then if we trust God, the word of God enables our hearts to obey God and to claim his promises. And this is why every believer, each believer should be diligent to apply himself to hear and heed God's words. Because in the word, I love this, in the word we see God. But in the word we also see how God sees us and how he sees us. Man, it is so different than the way we see ourselves. Jesus made that clear in Revelation three sixteen through 17. When he said, because you are lukewarm to the Laodiceans, because you are lukewarm and neither cold or, nor hot. Notice, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Here's why. Because you say, this is what they said of themselves, I am rich, I have become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. But you don't know, this is how Jesus saw them, you're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. You see, in the word of God, we see ourselves as we really are. This helps us to be honest with God and to trust His will and to obey Him. He knows if our heart is filled with unbelief or if it's filled with faith. So when He prohibits uh, some from entering rest, He's judging fairly because He knows the heart. That's why we have to ask, do, do, do we have a sinful attitude or a sinful activity that you think God doesn't see or you hope that God won't notice or you hope that he's not paying attention hey he knows about it and the first step of repentance is to confess that God knows about your sins verse 18 and first I will repay double for their iniquity and their sin because they have defiled my land they have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of the detestable and abominable idols god says i will repay them double for their wickedness and their sin and this means god's judgment would be more than enough and complete verses 19 through 20 O lord my strength and my fortress my refuge in the day of affliction the, de- the Gentiles shall come to you from the ends of the earth and say, Surely our fathers have inherited lies, worthlessness, and unprofitable things. Will a man make gods for himself which are not gods? Lord, you're my strength, Jeremiah said. And you're my fortress, you're my f- refuge in the day of trouble. 
He said, nations from around the world will come to you and say, our ancestors left us a foolish heritage for they worship worthless idols. Can people really make their own gods? They said, these aren't real gods at all. These idols. Now, Jeremiah sees a day when the Gentiles will be converted. They'll be saved. And they will say to God's people, surely our fathers have inherited lies. Speaking of idolatry. They'll acknowledge the worthlessness of the idols and they'll turn and worship the true and the living God. So after they've suffered for their wickedness, they'll come and they'll humble themselves before God. They'll come to the place where they admit their God is the only God. He's the God that they need. God's strength for support and comfort. My fortress to protect and shelter me. And my refuge where I can run, where I can run to in the day of affliction. So let, let, let God be your strength when you feel weak. Let him be your fortress when enemies come against you. And let him be your refuge when you need to get away from the pressures of life. Notice how need drives a lot of people to God who made themselves distance from them. Those who insulted God when they were doing well will be glad to run to him in the day they're having problems. They'll be prompted to go back to God by the conversion of the Gentiles, Jeremiah said. The Gentiles being the nations from around the world, they'll come to you. Jeremiah saw not only the gathering of the Jewish remnant, but also the coming of the Gentile nations from the ends of the earth to worship the true and the living God of Israel. Jeremiah comforts himself with this hope in excitement, and he says here, O Lord, my strength and my fortress. And he's saying, Now, God, I'm comforted because you have given me a hope that many will come to you. All these Gentiles from the ends of the earth, Jew and Gentiles, will be saved. Those who are brought to God can't help but rejoice when they see others coming to Him and coming back to Him. You know yourself, when you see somebody get saved or somebody that is backslidden come to it, it just rejoices your heart. The Gentiles will confess their sin of idolatry and they will admit that the idols were worthless and then they'll be taught to know the Lord. But in the meantime, it's the church's job today to spread the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth so that sinners will give up their false gods, whatever they might be, and they'll trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Their deliverance from captivity, whatever that captivity be, it could be alcohol, it could be drugs, it could be money, whatever. The, the deliverance from captivity will be a type and a figure of this great salvation to be worked out by the Messiah who will gather, who will gather together in one, the children of God that were scattered abroad. What a moment of shame this is going to be for Judah. Because they have clung so stupidly to the same false idols. And God further affirms concerning the Gentiles. Closing in verse 21. Therefore, behold, I will this once cause them to know. I will cause them to know my hand and my might. And they shall know that my name is the Lord. 
God says, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. That is, I am that I am. I am the eternal one. I am the living one. In that day, Judah is going to see that God has dealt fairly with them in every situation. Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you for Jeremiah, God. We thank you for this wonderful, powerful book, God. Lord, may we learn from it, God. Father, that, that, that to worship anything other than the true and the living God is stupidity. It is useless. <clears throat> there is nothing worthwhile in it. There's nothing to get out of it except eternal judgment. So, Father, help us to keep our eyes on you, to look to you and you alone, God, for you are worthy and you have all that we need in this life, Lord. You have all that we need for eternal life, God. So, Lord, we just thank you so much for who you are and for the wonderful hope and salvation that you offer, God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>